you can turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to get there momentarily. Um, this, uh, this, I'm going to read a verse from the first chapter of 1 Timothy, and I think you'll find it uh, very fascinating. But before we begin, actually, uh, just a little quick history lesson. <laughs> very quick, because uh, maybe sometimes when you're in school, history puts you to sleep, and I don't want to do that. Um, but back in the 1700s, in 1741, we saw the publication of what was, or what is, probably the most famous sermon of all time. It is Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you are familiar with that sermon, or at least familiar with the title? Yeah, it's, it's very well known. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is probably the most famous sermon of all time, but I would also like to say it's probably the most misunderstood sermon as well. I mean, I... I Maybe not uh, everyone here has read through the whole thing, but uh, truth be told, I think this is a misunderstood sermon because we just hear that title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and we just stop there. We just stop at the idea that God is angry, that God is mad, and more than that, that God is mad at me. See, that's very bad news. And I think, though, that's a very unfair treatment of uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon. It's not really what his sermon is all about. But for better or for worse, the colloquial knowledge of this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is just that. An angry God, a mad God, a God who is out to get us. It's misremembered, and I think it's misunderstood. And I, But I think, though, that it begs the question, is God angry with us? Is God happy with us? Or even, even besides that, when you think about God, how do you imagine him thinking about you? You know, uh, what, what is his character like when you mess up? Or what is his character like when you succeed? Is there a, a vast difference between those two characters? You know, it, it, how do you think about him when you fail? Do you think he's going to cast you off or cast you aside? Is God angry with us? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning because I want to speak to this reality and I want to prove to you actually that actually God is actually happy with us. And we see that. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy. Paul here is writing to his protege, Timotheus, Timothy, and he is writing here and he, look at what he says in verse 11. He writes, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. That word blessed there, it actually means happy. It's the glorious gospel of the happy God. How do we get to there? Well, first of all, I want to talk to you first about a common misconception. First of all, a common misconception. And that misconception is that God is grumpy. <laughs> that God is just grumpy. And I think there's this inbred sort of hatred uh, towards God in man uh, because I think they, they think that God is just out to get them. He's some sort of like predator and he's ready to pounce and he's ready to pounce on us when we mess up. But that's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. It's actually, that's the God of popular culture. If you look at God in some of the uh, movies that have come out in years past, you know, how is he always portrayed, right? He's always this grumpy, old, gray-haired man who's sort of just angry. Like, I, you know, sometimes Pastor Jay references movies. 
and I'm going to show myself a little bit more of a nerd because in Star Trek V, right, Star Trek V, they actually are on the search for God. The crew of the Star Trek Inter or the Starship Enterprise, <laughs> they go out and they're searching for God, and they actually find him in this movie, believe it or not. But they find him and he's not God at all. He's some sort of vengeful God. He's just out after retribution. He's after vengeance. And in the movie, in Captain Kirk, he says, maybe God is not out there. That's kind of sad. It's sad if that's the only representation of God that you have. A God who's vengeful and angry. But the fact of the matter is, this notion, this idea that God is grumpy is just a very bad misrepresentation of the God of the Bible that you have in your hands. God is not some sort of crotchety old man who's just angry that things didn't go his way. And God is actually, he's not after retribution, he's actually after redemption. He's after your rescue. See, the misconception is that God is grumpy. Uh, here's three ways we sort of misconceive God. First of all, believe it or not, God is not your dad. And by that I mean that God is not like your earthly father. And I can say that. I love my dad. My dad has been a preacher for almost 30 years now. I love him and I look up to him and I cherish my dad and I cherish the relationship that we have together. But safe I think it's very safe to say that my dad would make a very crummy God. <laughs> I can't worship him. He's, he's fallible. He's broken just like everyone else. And sure, like, you know, there's traits in our earthly fathers that we can see in our heavenly father. But those similarities are just shadows. They're just broken representations of our true father. Because you see, maybe you have seen the worst in your earthly father. Maybe his temper, maybe his impatience, maybe his emotion, maybe his selfishness, maybe his depression at times. We see the worst in our dads at times. And all of this is opposite to our Heavenly Father, whose emotions never change and whose love is so dramatically different, it is steadfast and sure forever. That's our Heavenly Father. As it says in Psalm 118, verse 1, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. That's our Heavenly Father. He doesn't change his mind about us. And actually, it, even more than that, he doesn't get frustrated with his investment. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? That God has invested in us through the work of his Son, and he doesn't get frustrated when we mess up. He's not surprised by our faults. When he sent his son to the cross to die for us, God knew what he was buying. <laughs> he was buying sinners. And the fact of the matter is, I love this quote from this writer. His name is Octavius Winslow. And he says this, We may doubt and we may debase and we may deny our relationship with God, yet God will never disown us as his children, nor will he disinherit us as his heirs. You see, we may cease to act as, ch as a child, but God will never cease to love as a father. I say amen to that. Sometimes I act like a rebellious child, but God never disowns me. So God is not like your earthly dad. He's far, far better. He's far, far more faithful. But also, secondly, God is not a dictator. God is not a dictator. You know, our Heavenly Father is not some sort of 
gray-haired sort of old man who's just sitting up in heaven. He's, he's trying to just take all the joy out of your life. <laughs> Sometimes I think that we think that God is like that. That he gives us all these rules and he gives us all these things that we have to do and these standards that we have to follow. And God is just sort of this divine sort of buzzkill. That he takes all the joy out of our life. That we can't have any happiness. And he's up there and he's saying, don't be happy. That's not our God. And that's the popular perception of him. That he's sort of just hemming you in. You know, I talked about this in Sunday school. That, that he gives us this law. And we only see it as something that keeps us in. It's a fence that keeps us from enjoying life. But actually the law of God is, is his way of ushering us into a better life. But we see it wrongly. We see it as this thing that just keeps us in line. But God and his law are not thieves of joy. They're actually shepherds of joy. And through this, through the Bible, through his law, God is seeking to bring us into his joy. That's what's remarkable. Into, as it says in Psalm 16:11, the fullness of joy. Psalm 16:11. I'll read that for you. It says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is our Father. His laws and his commands for obedience are not a hindrance to life. But as it says also in John chapter 10 in the Gospels, they are giving us life abundantly. God is not like your earthly dad. He is not a dictator trying to rob you of joy. But also, thirdly, and this is, I think, most important, God is not Santa Claus. If you think about it, that's very good news. That God is not like St. Nicholas. <laughs> you know, Santa Claus, this guy who comes around every December, is sort of this cultural icon, you know, that's sort of become so godlike that we've actually become to put the characters of Santa Claus back onto the God of the Bible. <laughs> you know, we sing the songs that, you know, that song that, you, that we always sing that, you know, you better watch out, you better not cry. I don't, I forget the words now, they're leaving my head. Better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And it's very scary. <laughs> he sees you when you're naughty, he sees you when you're nice. You better uh, not mess up because he's checking his list twice. <laughs> and if you, don't, if you mess up, you're going to get a lump of coal. You know, we treat that like God. You better be nice. You can't be naughty because he's not going to give you coal. He's actually going to give you condemnation. <laughs> That's the news of, uh, of a God like Santa. It's actually... Not God at all. Thank God that he's not like Santa Claus. As one writer says it this way, Jesus is not, thank goodness, Santa Claus. He will come to the world's sins with no list to check and no tests to grade and no debts to collect and no scores to settle. In fact, he will wipe away the handwriting that was against us and nail it to his cross. Amen to that. God is not keeping a heavy, heavenly naughty or nice list from which to dispense grace to the nice people and condemnation to the naughty ones. <laughs> the truth is, God does not judge us on the measure of our performance. He doesn't. That would be very bad news. God's economy isn't a system where if you do certain things, that's the secret formula in order to get God to come through for you. 
That's not how it works. God is faithful regardless and forever. And even if we don't come right out and say it, many Christians, I think, operate in this world. They, they function in this world as, as if they are their saviors. That their performance is what gets them in and what keeps them in. And that if I can just do enough good things, if I can just be nice enough, then this, this heavenly Kris Kringle will come through for me and give me blessings. <laughs> and better not mess up or we'll just get that lump of coal, right? But that's not the God of this Bible. He's not a Santa Claus. And the fact of the matter is, if you believe something tending towards that, you actually don't believe in God at all. Actually, I would say you believe in karma. That's actually what you believe. You believe in a karmic Christianity, and which I think is something, something tending towards the most deceitful form of Christianity. Let, let me explain it to you this way, because uh, I think we get sucked into this. We get sucked into this idea that God loves us more on our good days, and he loves us less on our bad days. You know, think about this. Let's say, let's say tomorrow... You wake up before your alarm. You have your alarm set for 6 a.m. You wake up at 5.45. So you have an extra 15 minutes to enjoy a second cup of coffee. You make some eggs. You have a great morning. You spend your hour in devotions. You get dressed. You shower. and You shave. You look all nice. And you go to work. And you make it on time because you woke up 15 minutes early. And you just have a great day at work. And then you go to the grocery store on your way home and you're able to uh, win someone to the Lord as you were witnessing to them at the grocery store. And then you go home and your wife, she's already made dinner. It's awesome. She's already put the kids to sleep and everything. And so it's just a fantastic evening. And it's a fantastic day. And then on Tuesday, you don't wake up quite as early. You're actually an hour late. So you have no time for coffee. You have no time for eggs. All you can do is just make some Pop-Tarts. And you put those in and then you grab them and you go to your office and you have a terrible day because you're late. And then you forgot to get salt because you live out where you have to have salt in your water system. So you have to go to Publix and you have to go get six bags of salt and you have to bring them home. And then you accidentally drop one and it breaks. And so all the salt goes on your driveway and now you don't have salt to put in your system. You just have a very bad day. Let me ask you, on which day does God love you more? If you said uh, on one day or the other, then you believe in karma. You don't believe in God because God loves you regardless of what happens through the course of your day. It's the, that's the thing that is so much... Uh, it is so amazing about God is that on our good days and on our bad days, his love for us is exactly the same. He is ever the same. As it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And in all that he is to us and all that he is for us, he is immutable. That means he doesn't change. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. And this, this is the cool phrase. With whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It means it doesn't change. 
There's no changing with Him. All the things that He gives us are from Him and from His eternal character of love for us. And I would like to say that God is not a God of karma who only rewards the good people and only punishes the bad people. Actually, God is a God of grace. And He gives everyone the opposite of what they deserve. (laughs) That's our God. So God is not grumpy. He's not like your earthly dad. He's not a dictator. and He's not, thank goodness, Santa Claus. Actually, we have to come to this, secondly, a resounding conclusion in the fact that God is happy. And why? Why is God happy with us? Well, Paul writes that here again in 1 Timothy 1.11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. As we know, that word means happy, and it occurs 49 other times in your New Testament. You, you can actually find it most predominantly in Matthew chapter 5, you know, when it's going through all the Beatitudes. Blessed are they that mourn, and blessed and so forth. Happy are they. That's what that means. And the truth, I think, is significant considering the context in which it was written. You see, Timothy was just beginning his work in the church at Ephesus at the time of this letter. And he's surrounded by those who are leaving the faith. He's surrounded by other fellow disciples who actually left the Christian faith. They departed and they were actually disparaging the church. And they were seeking to destroy and discount this message. So how could they be happy in times like these? How could they be happy with this? Well, you see, the amazing thing is that, first of all, God is happy in himself. That may sound weird, but this may sound even weirder. God doesn't need you to be happy. He doesn't need you in order for his happiness to be sustained. And actually, we have to realize this, that God was happy before the world existed, and he will be happy after the world exists. He is what you can call, he, he is the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And His happiness isn't contingent upon us. He's completely satisfied within Himself. He He wasn't lonely before He made the world, and that's why He made us. He wasn't sitting up in the universe in the, in the vast little sort of canvas of space and was just really lonely, and so He decided to make humans. No, we, we are here to reflect His glory, Right? And in that glory, we reflect his happiness. His happiness is rooted in his own divine and triune nature. Turn with me to John chapter 17 really quick. Um, Turn back to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 17. And this is what you might know as um, Christ's high priestly prayer. And it's very interesting what he says here in in verse 20. John 17, look at verse 20. Neither, this is Jesus speaking, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, they sh- that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them and thou hast, as thou hast loved me. So you see here, there's sort of, the, the, the Trinity forms this sort of 
union of fellowship and happiness. And there's enormous comfort in that fact that our blessed God is a God who is full of joy. And actually, as, you, as we can read in First Peter, he's a God that is full of joy that we can't even imagine. In First Peter, Peter chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable. God is full of unspeakable joy in himself because he is God. But not only is he glad in himself, but secondly, and this is most, this is just awesome, he is glorified in his son. God is happy with you because his law has been satisfied and the demand for perfection was already met in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. He's glorified that in that. He's blessed in the fact that he's blessed in the fact that his son has has done and he has finished that perfect atoning work for you. John 13 verse 31 says this, therefore when he was gone out Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and straightway glorify him. That's a lot of kind of circular wording there, but basically God is glorified in His Son for what He was about to do. He was about to go to the cross for us. Because of this good news, because of the gospel, we are made to enter into the joy of our blessed God, the joy of our happy God. Matthew 25, 23 says this, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will make thee ruler over many things. And get this, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. You see, the cross welcomes all those who believe in his saving power into, get this, the happiness of heaven. That's what awaits you. The perfect happiness of heaven. It says there, enter into the joy of my Lord. or that It really means enter into my gladness or share in my happiness. And by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are made partakers of God's eternal happiness. That's amazing. That God, the happy God, you know what his mission is? His mission is for us to share in his happiness. He seeks to give it to us. His desire through the redemption of sinners is to give us his happiness. God died that, that our joy or that his joy might be ours. That's what it says in John 15 chapter 11, or John 15:11. It says, "These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full." God is doing what he is doing. He has done what he has done so that we might have joy, his joy. You know, Christians can sometimes be some of the most unhappy people. I have to say that because I experienced it. Uh, when I was living in South Carolina, I was going to school up there, and I w- used to work at Panera Bread. You like Panera Bread? I, I, I still like Panera Bread. I, I've seen behind the counter of Panera Bread, and I still like it. That's how good it is. But I used to work there, and one of the caveats of working there was, you know, working on Sundays. And so I work a morning shift sometimes, and I would, you know, be the breakfast person, you know, those delicious breakfast sandwiches. And I would work, that would bring me working through the, the lunch, the lunch rush, as they called it. 
and people would rush in. And I could always tell, you know, when these people, they had just come from church. You know, they were all dressed up. Everyone was looking nice, looking fancy. They coming in. And I have to tell you that sometimes these church people were some of the most annoying customers I've ever had to serve. I don't know why that is. They were just grumpy. They were immediately impatient if we didn't have their, you know, frontega chicken panini right, made right away. They were just unhappy. They were just not very satisfied with whatever was before them. They were just very unhappy. And I think this unhappiness is sort of, it stems from a deeper, you know, sort of disgruntledness. And I think, I think honestly, it has to do with, with um, maybe what you've heard about the end times. You know, if, you, if you've been, been in church for any time, maybe you've heard this illustration before. You know, when you get to heaven, that there's going to be this huge line of Christians, and they're going to go before this, this giant judge's desk. And where uh, behind that judge's desk is Jesus. And he's going to start judging you based on what you've done in this life. And behind him, like, like here, there's going to be this giant IMAX screen, right? And, he's, and God's going to put in this DVD and it's going to start playing everything you've ever done in this life. And God is going to start judging you based on that. All the thoughts, all the things that you didn't say, all the things that you said, all your actions... I gotta tell you, if I heard that, I don't want to be there. <laughs> but that's not true. That's not at all what's gonna happen when you get to heaven. You see, the only thing that's gonna happen when we get to heaven, and I think, is this: is that God is—he's going to sort of open this filing cabinet. He's gonna take out this file. He's gonna open it. When he opens it, it's just gonna be dripping with blood. Because your file, your account has now stamped upon it the words pardoned, the words forgiven, the words no condemnation, the words paid in full because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He's going to open that and he's going to read those words and he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not because you were faithful, but because Jesus Christ was. Your record is not going to be your own because guess what? You know why? Christ has nailed your record to the cross. The only account you're going to give in heaven is the account of Jesus Christ, the Lord, who has come and taken your place. The truth is, because of that, if you believe in that fact, God can't be anything other than happy with you. Because guess why? You are in Christ. As it says in Colossians chapter 3, you are in Jesus' shadow. You are hidden in Christ's perfection and all of God's wrath towards you, all of his anger towards you for the sin that is in your life was given to Jesus. And guess what is thrown into his sea of forgetfulness, we might say. One writer writes it like this. Jesus takes all of the badness down into the forgettery of his death. It offers to the Father only what is held in the memory of his resurrection. Jesus took it all. Jesus took everything, all your sin, all your shame, all your guilt, all the things that you've ever said, and he takes it on himself, and he nails it to his cross, and he says, it is finished. And there he secures fully and finally and forever your forgiveness. As it says in Psalm 103. Actually, turn to Psalm 103. 
Psalms 103, and listen to these verses. I think these are amazing verses. A declaration of this full forgiveness that we have from Jesus. Psalm 103, look at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. And get this, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That's because of the Son. God is happy because of what his Son did, not because of what you do. That's amazing. That's the gospel. But you might be thinking then, okay, okay, right, but doesn't that give us a license to sin? That, preaching that doesn't, that, doesn't that make it to where you can just do whatever you want to do now? Because obviously you're under grace, right? Well, wrong. <laughs> because you might be, so how does this really affect us in our daily life? How is the, the idea that when we get to heaven, we are justified and paid in full freely? How does that affect us now? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because not only is God glad in himself and he's glorified in his son, but right now he is grieved in our sin. And let me tell you why that's good news. Well, actually, if you, uh, you don't have to turn there, but Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, it says this, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. That word grieve there is very important. It means to make sorrowful or to affect with sadness. And this grieving of God and his Holy Spirit is a direct consequence of our sin. You see, God is grieved and he is saddened by the fact that we would go to anything else other than himself for satisfaction. You know, that's what your sin is, really. Your sin is, is not actually just the behaviors, it's actually a, it's actually a belief problem. Your sin is, is a direct effect of you not believing that God has given you everything you need. So you go out and take something that's not yours. You go out and do something that you should not do or say something that you should not say. You don't do sinful things and that's what makes you become a sinner. You are a sinner and therefore you do sinful things. Everyone is born a sinner and this sin is very offensive to God. He takes it very seriously. And in fact, in Habakkuk chapter 1 and in verse 13, it tells us that God can't even look at sin. He's so holy, he can't even look at it. And in Psalm 5, verse 5, it actually tells us that God hates all the workers of iniquity. He hates all those who do sin. So how does, okay, so how does all that make sense? How do we, how do we, how do we uh, sort of combine this idea that we, have, that we have full and free forgiveness and we can live under the grace of God, and yet we have to remember that we are constantly sinners and God hates sin? Well, it's this word grieve. We know and read from scriptures that God's love for us does not rise or it does not fall in the magnitude or the measure of our obedience. The good news of the gospel is that God the Father's love for you is eternally secure in the person and work of the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we can see this, the beauty in this word grieve because you see... God's grief over your sin is actually a spiritual combination of what I like to call anger and love. 
It's the combination of that. The anger is still there over your sin, but it's sweetened by the love because of what Christ did. All the edge and all the bitterness is taken off because of what Jesus did. Because of Christ, the Son the Son's perfect performance on the cross for you, the people of God now only feel the Father's grace and never His wrath. Why? Because Christ endured the wrath for you. God is grieved that we would, that we would, neject, that we would neglect that sacrifice and go our own way, but our motivation then is this, that Christ endured the brunt of God's undeserved justice so that you and I can enjoy the beauty of His undeserved grace. That's the gospel. Jesus for us. Jesus' life for us. Jesus dying in our place. In our drive and our motivation in this life is not out of, uh, out of a fear of a dictator or not out of trying to make some, some dad happy or not trying to get some heavenly present under our Christmas tree. Our motivation in this life is simply the fact of the gospel and the truth that Jesus loves us and has finally and fully and forever forgiven us. We glorify God through that. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ constraineth us. It compels us. It controls us. Because thus we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, then that they, which should, they that live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and, would, and who rose again. The love of God, the eternal love of God, constrains us and controls us into living for Him forever. And you see, that's what God's after. People who love Him because they know that He has first loved us. This is the glorious gospel of the, bless- of the blessed God. This happy God that we serve, who's not a dictator, He's not... Uh, he's not Santa Claus. He's happy because of what his son did for us. And so then we come to the truth that your worst days are never so, so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Always and forever you are in need of the grace of God. And we have to conclude then. Is God happy? Yes. Because of what His Son has done for us. And He's leading us into this happiness by His grace and through His faith. And to that I have to say, Amen. And praise God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.